The old world is dying. The new world struggles to be born. Now is the time of monsters. And what better time to talk about a novel that I didn't like. Welcome. This is the third episode of the Reading in the Time of Monsters podcast. My name is Peter, and today we will be discussing No One is Talking About This, a novel by Patricia Lockwood, memoirist, poet, Twitter personality, and now novelist. This was published in 2021. I, in the course of trying to prepare for this podcast, I also found that I couldn't really explain my feelings about this book without having to go into my ideas about contemporary literature more broadly. So this is also something of a programmatic statement of what I think is going on, arguably part of why I started this podcast, along with it's it's nice to have something to do. So there's going to be a fair amount of that. It's not just going to be about Lockwood's book and leave it at that. But before we get into all of that, I am going to do my usual, uh, well, usual, I have only done it one episode so far, but what I anticipate to be my usual self-criticism, because who else will hold me accountable but myself? Uh, performance. Still have some ways to go in terms of filler words, pacing, and so on. I imagine that will be an extended journey. But I also did a burp. I burped in the middle of the episode. I don't know how to do sound editing, so I've not edited it out. I'm not sure if I would anyway. I mean, probably. You know, burp's pretty gross. Some people are really grossed out by that kind of thing. I wouldn't edit out my ums and ahs, probably, because that seems dishonest somehow. But a burp, I feel like a burp you can edit out. We all know that I am a person with a body, and the body sometimes produce noises. But, well, anyway. Sorry, folks. Perhaps I'll learn sound editing one of these days. Well, we'll, we'll see. Self-criticism in terms of content. I should have uh, talked about good biographies more. One of the principles of the show is that if you're going to have criticism, it's good to also nail your own colors to the mast. It's not so much a matter of positivity. I'm, I'm not someone who believes that one is obligated to be positive so much as you should have some skin in the game, so to speak. Uh, mixing metaphors, but what can you do? I think that it's best to put the things that you care about out there for other people's criticism. So it's not just you lording it over the works of others and things that others enjoy. So I talked about a bad biography, or at least a mediocre one, biography of Hunter S. Thompson, and I did mention some biographies I thought were pretty good. But I didn't really say what about them was good. I just kind of listed them off. So I will talk about them briefly. Uh, first, I would say for good biography, you really want deep historical context. 
right? I trained as a historian. Biography, not very well thought of by the historical profession in academia on the idea that it is uh, not entirely warranted to write whole books about one person given the nature of historical structure, the nature of causality that usually cannot be boiled down to one person and their personality. Even instances where one person clearly altered the course of history, you have to talk about how they were in the position to do that in the first place. There are other reasons, too. A sort of snobbishness enters into it, right? Biographies are popular. People like to read them. You can give them as gifts to your dad or your aunt. And in the Academy, sometimes we could consider ourselves above that. Certainly for a first book, you would not want to go in front of your tenure committee brandishing a biography. I'm sure people do it, and it's fine, but it's suboptimal. Maybe once you're a bit older, more established, you could find some historical figure who you could find some sort of novel pitch about and write a biography there, maybe make a little bit more money than your 80 grand a year. Anyway, that said, I'm a historian. I trained as a historian. I always liked biographies, and I still do. I don't like just any old biography, though. I like there to be good, solid, and deep historical context. Because, to me, it's all about the interaction of the individual with the historical processes and the society around them. So in one of my favorite biographies, No Man Knows My History by Fawn Brody, a biography of Joseph Smith, we go into the background of religious mania in the post-American revolutionary period in upstate New York. Uh, The Rascal King by uh, Jack Beatty about uh, James Curley, Boston politician. We go into the deep background of Boston politics, not just the politics of Curley's time, but going back, you know, uh, arguably, you could say perhaps even further than would necessarily make sense for the analysis going into all this stuff about Boston's Puritan background and so on and so forth. But I don't think it necessarily is too much background. I think it's interesting. I think it makes for a better story. Now, Richardson actually, he's not that bad on that. In uh, Peter Richardson, who wrote Savage Journey, the mediocre Hunter S. Thompson biography I'm talking about, he actually does get into some pretty substantial historical background of things like bohemian communities, writing that issued from them, West Coast writing, and so on. That, that, that part of his book is actually pretty decent. What else should feature into a good biography? Well, a biography is a story, and a story should feature change. Otherwise, it's not a story, it's just a picture. That's all well and good, but it's not a story, which means it's not really a good biography. And I think that people should pay more attention to the concept of change, and to the different ways change can manifest itself, 
and the different ways in which we can express change, the metaphors that we can use for it. Not only do I think that the theory of change presented in Savage Journey about Hunter S. Thompson is wrong, but I actually don't see much evidence that anyone involved really thought about it. And nor did the other lousy biographers in some of the bad biographies I also mentioned. Uh, Burns's biography of Ayn Rand comes to mind. I don't remember which ones I, uh, I also cited, but... Oh, Sperber's biography of Karl Marx. And, yeah, so essentially I think... Obviously, these are stories to a certain extent of change. They are stories. Things do change. But like I said in the podcast, in Savage Journeys, it follows without really thinking that much about it, seemingly, or just being wrong about it. Perhaps Richardson gave it loads of thought. I don't know. But if he did, I don't know how he got to the idea of this essentially developmentalist theory of change for Hunter S. Thompson, that Thompson was always the guy he was, and all he ever did was become more of that guy. The child is the father to the man. He didn't meaningfully change his ideas or his values or his actions as time went by. I do not think that the historical record left behind by Thompson and those who knew him, supports that theory. And I think that it was underthought, not because I'm some expert on the work of Peter Richardson, it's the only book of his I've read, but because this is such a common narrative. It's such a common theory of change about personal change, personal development, that people are who they are, and that any change is just growth like the acorn turning into a sapling and then growing into a tree. It was always there in the acorn to begin with. You're just simply becoming you. When somebody tells you who they are, listen to them. I don't think that's even necessarily bad advice. I don't think that the developmentalist model of change is always wrong. Some people, some institutions, some movements, some nations, perhaps, if you believe that nations or societies can be biographized in that way. Perhaps it fits, but I don't think it fits everyone. It certainly doesn't fit as many people as we seem to think it does, and it does not fit Hunter Stockton Thompson at all. Uh, It's funny, seemingly the only other biographical model we get in terms of what you could call the common sense understanding of biographical change is basically a trauma model, right? Essentially somebody is, somebody is who they are. They are that acorn growing into the oak tree, but then they get traumatized. Something, something happens, something happens that shouldn't have happened. And then the graph goes hockey stick, right? Instead of that nice gradual progression into being who you were destined to be, Uh, So it's like if somebody put a rock uh, on top of the sapling or something in the tree, or when it's a young tree, somebody 
don't know. Uh, throws a throws a uh, like a rod through it, like a metal rod, like rebar, and the tree grows around it. And it's not, it's not like the other trees anymore. It's not how it was designed to be in the eight designed. It's not like what usually comes out of the acorn. And again, some lives that fits, some processes of change that fits. But I don't think we could take it as given that lives fit into one or two of those, one of those two models. I think it's, along with everything else, quite presentist, as they used to say in history, to assume that they do. I think we need to think more. That's my usual answer to these things. Not not always. But I think you'll see that thinking more is... Uh, Often my prescription, I suppose. Anyway, let's get on to the content. Uh, as you can see, I do have criticisms of the shape of literature understood broadly, right? So when I'm talking about what's going on with literature, in this case, I mean not just literary fiction, but also genre fiction, nonfiction. Uh, maybe you could apply it to, you know, uh, narrative in other forms, you know, movies, TV video games perhaps, but I'm not as confident about those. Uh, so I think there's, like, I, like I've been saying, you know, I do try to nail my colors to the mast. I do try to make things as specific and concrete as possible because obviously I'm not alone in thinking that there's uh, some problems with how uh, our culture is, not just in terms of outcomes, we have what seems to me to be a fairly, a society in which many people are unhappy and do not flourish and whose future is in some doubt, but also just in terms of itself. And these things, I think, reflect each other. But how many people are really happy with the books that they have available to them, in t- uh, or at least the books that they hear about, that they get recommended, that they perhaps pick up on those bases. I'm actually pretty happy uh, in terms of uh, the books that are available to me because, at least in part because of coming from a history background, I know that there's a lot of old books out there. But in terms of contemporary literature, I do think that we're not in a great period in in any of the fields I talked about. Arguably, we're a bit better off with nonfiction. I don't know. but I do think that literary fiction in particular is in a not great place. And I think it's valuable to get specific about that, to try to get down to cases, not just flying up my colors of what I do like, but also making clear what I don't and trying to get specific as to why and to how it relates to the larger system and to the things I do like get kind of a um, picture with more dimensionality than I think we often do get in criticism these days. Cause I do think that the malaise I'm talking about has gotten into criticism, though I will say uh, percentage wise, we probably have more good criticism than we do of good novels. Uh, you know, so there's that going for us anyway. 
So, Nadir, what do I mean by a Nadir? What do I mean by malaise? I think that uh, we don't have... Uh, uh, let me Let me restate. I think that a lot of the works of literature and of genre fiction, sometimes nonfiction, that get promoted as being particularly good really aren't. I think that good works get neglected. I think that aspects of our contemporary situation exacerbate the problem. I think that confusion and mediocrity reigns. In some cases, sub-mediocrity. And why is that? I don't know, but I will say, let, let's. we might as well start jumping into the actual book. So let's talk about what the book is about, which I do think also has something to do with why it seems so impossible to really find a satisfying read consistently. Why so many of the reads we do get are unsatisfying and why both the producers of culture and the critics of it so often seem so confused and like they're grappling with a smog. I know I've used that metaphor before, and perhaps I'll use it again. And that's the internet. That's the internet, folks, right? So Patricia Lockwood's No One Is Talking About This is an internet novel. It is a book more or less about the internet and people's experience of it. It was actually one of two that came out within, I think, a few months of each other, both of them by people who had careers largely defined by writing for the internet, meaning specifically for internet-based publications. Right. In what sense is J.K. Rowling, say, not an internet writer? Well, she doesn't write about the internet. Perhaps she does in some of her mystery novels, but I haven't read those because, you know, the hell with her. But Harry Potter, one of the reasons, likely, it succeeded like it did was because it got adopted by internet users early on. It got sold over the internet. To what extent is any writer really not an internet writer at this point? When you think about it, uh, uh, well, anyway, point is, both Lockwood Uh, Patricia Lockwood and Lauren Euler, who in that same year, 2021, wrote another internet novel. I believe it was Euler referred to both hers and Lockwood's novels as evil twins. And Euler's was called um, Fake Accounts. I read both. I didn't like either. I have less to say about Fake Accounts in that I think it's actually just more, I think it's worse than this book. Perhaps I'll write about it or podcast about it at some point. I did write about it on my blog. Um, But there's also just less to say about it. But either way, Lockwood and Euler, both internet writers in the sense of having cut their teeth for internet publications, having prominent social media feeds, being the subject of a certain number of internet-based parasocial relationships, which I think enters into the whole literary malaise situation ways that I, I fully admit I don't understand, don't really 
even have a beginning of understanding, but it does feel unpromising that people have these relationships in their minds with writers. I guess they always did. I mean, think about, think about whatever, uh, the guy who shot John Lennon thought whatever relationship he thought he had with J.D. Salinger, uh, whose book he had in his back pocket when he did the deed, but I don't know. We'll leave that aside for now. Uh, I'm also going to talk a little bit about the experience of both reading and rereading. No one is talking about this briefly before getting into the meat of the book. I wouldn't do that ordinarily, but it's pretty important. Uh, I, I hated no one is talking about this when I first read it. I didn't like it when I reread it recently, but in the interest of honesty, I want to lay out a couple of things that caused me to hate it more last year when I first took it on board rather than now where I just kind of dislike it. Uh, first I made the mistake of listening to no one is talking about this as an audiobook. Uh, that's one of the ways I interact with contemporary novels. I also do read them sometimes, but I more often listen to them as audiobooks. Uh, I think that's because I get a lot of my books used. You, new novels don't wind up in the used market so often. So if I want to see what the new literary people are doing, I need to. I do it on audiobook, which I don't buy used because that's not really a thing. I have like a little, uh, I, I carve out some of my audiobook time for contemporary novels and sometimes uh, collections of short stories. So I listened to this in an audiobook, uh, and that made the experience much, much worse. Uh, there's, due to some formal aspects of the book, made it more irritating magnified aspects of the book that I didn't like. Second, and probably more pertinent, in the time period in which I was listening to No One Is Talking About This, a friend of mine attempted suicide. Uh, I'm not... I'm not saying this for sympathy. You'll see why I'm talking about this. I woke up, you know, one morning um, and I looked at my phone as I often do when I wake up and I saw a long email chain in my, in my inbox that began with this friend's suicide note, which had been sent to a dozen, two dozen, maybe friends of theirs uh, scattered all over the world. And this note, made clear that they were doing what they were doing, which included not just an attempt to kill themselves, but to mutilate themselves in some ways I won't go into, uh, because they felt they could not find a fitting place in the world. That they anticipated that their future would be uh, not to their liking, in large part due to inability to find the kind of career they wanted and to accomplish creative goals. And in that letter, which was pretty long, uh, the world as he describes it, his subjective view of the world, 
really not too dissimilar to the world as Lockwood writes it, and no one is talking about this. Except that Lockwood's narrator, who is pretty clearly based on Lockwood herself, it's, this has been called autofiction, and Lockwood has never disagreed with that, uh, to my knowledge. Um, Lockwood succeeds in this world, and glibly treats it as the only world, and we'll talk more about what that means. And the whole thing just felt fake and glib and and kind of insultingly unreal. I'm not someone who insists on realism, but sometimes the unreality of a given work can be can feel like an insult to our intelligence. That is how this felt. Whereas the real version of that world, the world of the internet, more or less, and its interactions with our daily lives, very nearly killed a friend of mine. And it embroidered this friend of mine's attempted suicide with various aspects I'm not going to go into out of respect for their privacy, but it made the whole thing really much more repellent. If you care, um, this friend lived and recovered and is doing reasonably well, all things considered. So yeah, that made reading it hard. That made, uh, I mean, especially listening to it. Uh, I, I felt repelled. I, I didn't like it from the beginning. But in that context, it's really difficult to get through. Whereas reading it again was easier. We'll talk some about why. So let's talk about the world that Lockwood conjures, right? It's about a woman, not named, but who, like Patricia Lockwood, uh, came to a certain degree of fame for making social media posts. Uh there's a lot of references to the portal, right? You go into the portal and you experience X, Y, and Z. Uh, the portal is Twitter, obviously, you know, Lockwood, I don't think, denies that. Uh, I don't really know why she calls it the portal instead of Twitter. Poetic license, I suppose. Uh, and much of the book is made up of observations about the portal and the ways in which the communication norms of the portal uh, come to dominate the narrator's way of life her mind space, her interactions with others. A lot of the book is made up of sections that are roughly the length of a tweet or perhaps a short tweet thread. So not quite 240 characters, but close. Uh, You could say that Lockwood writes in something like contemporary internet house style. And as I was writing this, it occurred to me that that's actually kind of part of the problem here. So Lockwood in this and in some of her other work, you know, shorter work I've seen, she writes in what I, a man in my mid-30s who does not have a Twitter account, but who is friends with a lot of people who do and who bemoan the fact uh, that they have Twitter and spend a lot of time on it, in the ages of those friends range from the early 20s to the early 50s. Um, Right, what I think of as contemporary internet house style. So, like I said, glib, kind of casually absurdist, layering ironies on top of ironies, very highly referential. So there's a lot of uh, talk about the strange linguistic tics, though mostly it's just vocabulary. Like, 
how how Lockwood and her friends call each other, their female friends, call each other binch, right? I guess as a misspelling of bitch. Uh, it's not, the linguistic analysis doesn't really go much beyond that, but she talks a lot about it, right? Very, very referential and self-referential. Actually kind of a little bit less in the way of pop culture references than I would consider to be really kind of standard internet and more just reference to self and other things that happened on Twitter. Um, and I, I guess that might be a sign that I'm old enough and I'm online enough to remember when a time when what I would have thought of as the internet would sound different if written down. Okay, so this, I think if we were going to try and pin it down, the language that Lockwood uses and represents as being the language of the internet is actually the language of a small portion of it at a certain time. Namely, what was and perhaps still is called weird Twitter, right? So uh, vaguely left of center leaning, absurdist uh, writing tweeting of the period roughly from 2015 till maybe now or maybe maybe it's run its course i don't know um but you know sort of the chapo trap house uh the the scene that it emerged from and various other uh the the people who write for your your dead spins and your i don't know the rest of the online magazines that people pay attention to the sort of people that they refer to when they refer to the internet, if that makes sense. But the point is, I'm old enough that I remember when that wasn't the way that the internet spoke. I remember a period when things would be more kind of twee, right? Um, sort of absurdist, but in a more, um, well, I wouldn't say even absurdist. So absurdist, when I say it, it's not just that it's silly, but that it implies a lack of meaning to the world. Right, say absurd, as the existentialists would say. I remember a period not too long ago when the dominant voice that I would hear on social media would be kind of more twee, like I said. It was, instead of implying that the world is absurd, it kind of implies that actually the world is maybe not good, but certainly amusing, uh, more pop culture references. Um, compound, comp, invented compound words that often involve swears, right? Very enthusiastic swearing, but in a either happy or kind of fake angry kind of way, right? Like, ah, oh, fuck waffles. You know what I mean? I, I mean, I feel like for people my age, if you say the word fuck waffles, that it's almost like a, like a Madeline cookie rather than, you know, a waffle, uh, summoning you back to, you know, Reddit circa, I don't even know what year. They all kind of run together, as many have observed. And I was always a bit of an outside observer because, I don't know, I, I'm, not, I'm not with it. I don't, I don't get these things. It's too, too much, man. Um, I also remember a period when the internet or what would be thought of as the voice of the internet would sound edgy, right? Instead of any of these things, it would sound uh, mean and cynical uh, and uh, if anyone made an assertion uh, then somebody would be there to counter it 
and tell them that you're an idiot. Uh, I remember periods when things like leet speak, right? You know, uh, replacing uh, numbers with letters with numbers and sometimes vice versa uh, was considered uh, unironically cool. Um, at least by some people, maybe not by, you know, the people who perhaps invented it maybe as a joke, but uh, I remember people who thought it was uh, at most, at most semi-ironically cool. Uh, so yeah, and, and what I, I, it also seems to me from, again, limited observation, but if it's, if it's obvious to me, then why isn't it obvious to writers that all of these registers still obtain in parts of the internet? You can still go to parts of the internet that speak in, you know, epic fuckwaffles, uh, language. You can still go to sp- parts where people talk like, you know, early 2000s edgelords. I mean, that's a lot of Reddit, as far as I could tell. You could go to parts where they kind of mix and match these various registers. Uh, And actually, it kind of seems like... How many people pay attention to Lockwood's corner of Twitter versus how many people probably still uh, go on YouTube to listen to, if not, say, the Nostalgia Critic, then... YouTube videos like it, right? So the Nostalgia Critic was somebody who spoke in that kind of epic fuck waffles, uh, let's be brightly cynical, but ultimately pretty mainstream about things, sort of early twenty late aughts, early 2010s, as far as I could tell, internet. And I only know about the Nostalgia Critic because I listened to a kind of weird Twitter-adjacent podcast about it out of historical interest and gave up because it got to inside baseball and I couldn't keep up with it. Um, I also understand that, uh, you know, you're kind of younger, very online people with cultural aspirations, roughly kind of Lockwood's cohort, sociologically speaking, but 10 to 20 years younger. If I understand properly, uh, Lockwood's in her early 40s. Uh, they speak pretty differently from Weird Twitter, which was largely a millennial thing. Uh, and they speak differently intentionally so, right? Because they don't like us. And, well, who can blame them? Uh, so why why do we frame this novel or others like it, like, like Lauren Euler's fake accounts, um, which, I don't know if it's to its credit or to its blame, doesn't speak quite as internet-y, as the the prose isn't, doesn't try to sound like Twitter as much as no one is talking about this. Um, but why do these novels and articles and whatever about internet culture talk about the internet with a definite article? So I don't think... The reason I'm bringing this up isn't because I think there's an issue of truth in advertising or something like that, right? Like, how dare these weird Twitter geeks claim that they own the internet, right? There's there's millions of Redditors who still think being an edgelord is cool. Uh, you know, billions who, are, who, who think, you know, Joss Whedon-style quipping is the height of wit. I mean, look at how popular the Marvel, the MCU is. But... And they're all online. They're all they're all plenty online. 
just less obscure parts of online, but you, but then there's probably also parts that are so obscure that writers don't even come from them. Nobody knows about them. Who knows what's going on on like fucking Neopets forums or something. So there's this weird kind of middle tranche that is understood to represent the world. And that's actually what I'm getting at here is a smallness of world, a lack of curiosity and a dedication almost to keeping that world small. That's what I see in terms of how Lockwood represents the internet and the world that gave that in which the internet is embedded. That is how I see that's I I kind of see fake accounts as being somewhat in the same vein, though though little, I should probably just stop bringing it up if I'm not gonna talk about it properly that's how i see other depictions of internet culture and i do see that is coming out in criticism even in criticism by people who i in many respects agree with about specific works and and admire the criticism of there i don't think there's as much dedication to keeping things small but i do think if you're a winner in this little world well we'll get into that um, you'd kind of figure that, uh, this would come with, uh, some kind of compensation, right? So you'd figure if you're talking about a small world, if you're talking about the life of someone who is dedicated to a space of the internet, where out of the seven or eight billion people in this world, only a couple of million people even know about, maybe eight digits worth of people, maybe three, but significantly less than like 10% of the world's population. And ultimately she's not dealing with all of those people. She's dealing with a very small number of those people. And we'll talk, we'll get into the plot in a minute. You would figure that would come with the compensation of like minute observation, right? That she would, would be saying something really uh, thoughtful and well depicted and original and detailed about what's going on, but it, it doesn't. It doesn't do that. Lockwood doesn't do that. I could I could tell that there's a lot of in jokes going on. I don't necessarily get what those jokes are because I'm not on Twitter, but I know the structure of an in joke more or less when I see one. Uh, but I wouldn't say that I noticed anything particularly original or closely observed. Uh, in this in this book so you kind of get worse of both worlds it's not like every book needs to have like this giant expanded world you could do very good books about what happens in like a tiny village or between two people uh but if you're going to claim that your book is about a space that often is compared to infinity right the internet is not infinite nothing is but it's it feels that way sometimes so if you're going to do that then you know why why model it and have it be almost entirely about such a small part of that infinity uh, that the rest of that infinity might as well not exist other than 
it just feels big to people is uh, just seems wasteful. Um, so we see this um, dedication on the part of Lockwood to her uh, small world of weird Twitter and its ways uh, through the plot, such as it is. Uh, plot uh, kind of disrupts the narrator's uh, both narcissistic and self-hating the way that narcissists uh, tend to be. They kind of, in my experience, tend to both love and hate themselves at the same time. Not unlike Gollum from Lord of the Rings. Uh, but the plot breaks in when um, the narrator's sister's kid has a terrible ailment. The kid is has yet to be born, in fact, but they could tell it has a terrible genetic impairment. Like like a, a real, real bad one, folks. It's it's not good um, to use the kind of phrasing you might hear on weird Twitter. Um, so this happens, and you would figure, like, that would be kind of this oh shit moment. And certainly, uh, the narrator does react strongly to it, but she doesn't really change, right? She understands that there's a world beyond the portal, but she still doesn't really have anything to say about it. Her way of expressing herself doesn't change. It's still like this nonstop loop of like references and like absurdist jokes. It's just, you know, she has to hang out with her family some. She feels bad for her sister and her niece or nephew, uh, and and so on and so forth. Um so alright. Uh Lockwood's interested in a small part of the world and isn't interested in uh other parts uh it's a it's it's a mirror but mirrors are fine right there's there's much to be said for the mirror model of literature whole schools of literary criticism are about mimesis um and and i agree with that but i do think that there's ways and ways to do it what this makes me think of is nothing so much as speaking of sort of stuff from the internet of, of your, if you remember that uh, site, uh, when would this have been? Hmm. I want to say late aughts, early tens uh, stuff. White people like, do you remember that one? It was just this little blog. Um, and it would have little pictures of things associated with basic, with what we would now call bourgeois existence, right? So stuff like L.L. Bean. I don't remember if L.L. Bean was necessarily one of the things that white people liked. But bourgeois, both from the kind of conservative and liberal branches of the bourgeoisie, I seem to remember, though maybe more from the liberal branch, right? So stuff white people like. They like uh, L.L. Bean and NPR and uh, apple picking recreationally, so on and so forth. And I remember that making the rounds and making the rounds, you know, knowing the kind of people I know, I knew at least some people who were trying to do a whole kind of white self critique thing, which I think it pretty became pretty evident that blogs like that weren't necessarily all that helpful for if you thought that a certain degree of performative white self loathing was actually helpful. That wasn't it necessarily. Um, but what I would say, and this is something, um, an insight I'm borrowing from John Dolan, is that self, self-hatred self like that, when it's performative, when you're really getting into the nitty-gritty of what you regard as your own loathsome culture, has a way of turning into 
a queasy kind of self-love, right? You're, you're, look, you're gazing into the mirror and you're looking at all this stuff you don't like, but you're also fixated on it. It's the only thing in your world. And like, you are going to have some love and that love has to go somewhere. So it's going to go to the only fucking thing you can see, which is your own stupid face, right? Or of others like you. I think this is a pretty common thing in a lot of literature. And, you know, let's just go ahead and be the lefty critic and say that this is ultimately a very strongly bourgeois tendency, right? The the way that the bourgeoisie tends to fixate over its manners, its consumption choices, relationship patterns, and so on in this minute, teeny, tiny detail, and expects everyone else to give a shit. And the funny thing is, in some cases, people do give a shit, not just, and not and not for no reason. Because I would tend to, uh, my thought is, is that you do get some actually pretty good novels of manners, as they used to say, or novels about this kind of bourgeois self-mirroring, but I think they come from periods when the bourgeoisie had more to say than it does now, right? I think part of the reason that this is a period of literary decline is because despite the fact that the upper classes have taken and taken and taken from all of us and sit on top of this hoard of wealth and leisure time and technology, and everything else that you would figure would make for at least a a good or great literature of self-regard, you also need to have something compelling you forward. You need some creativity, and you can't buy that at the end of the day. And I think it was when the bourgeoisie was in a healthier place, if not necessarily mentally healthy or like morally healthy, then it was stronger. So a lot of the great bourgeois novels come from the 19th century. You know, what uh, its greatest historian, Eric Hobsbawm, or two greatest historians, Eric Hobsbawm and Peter Gay, both in their different registers, very different, called the bourgeois century. I would also argue that for all of the faults that you find in this literature, the literature of uh, post-war U.S., which was also a period of bourgeois ascendancy, um, or when the bourgeois was the the American bourgeoisie was extraordinarily strong and self confident, um, not not without fear, not without problems, which you know uh, ultimately, if anything, they underrated, um, but was strong, and it produced strong literature, and even the literature that it produced that wasn't all that good had this feeling of strength and force behind it. Whereas, you know, there's about as much force or strength in no one is talking about this as in, I don't know, I probably should have thought about a simile before I, before I thought, before I went into this, like a, like a, like a malfunctioning laundry dryer is what it makes me think of. It kind of goes around and it goes around uh, in its weak way as it's on its way to puttering out. 
but it hasn't given up the ghost just yet. Right? I, I go to a pretty cheap laundromat. It's the closest one. Don't have in-unit laundry. And uh, you see them sometimes. And that's what it made me think of. Uh, yeah, so that's actually, you know, it's funny. In a way, it, it, it sabotages the book. I mean, sabotage. It, it produces, this bourgeois self-regard produces a weak foundation for the book along with the stuff I've already criticized, so there's not much to sabotage at all, but it's there's also like this little scintilla of relief, which is that, right, when the, the baby in, in utero is having its problems, uh, uh, Patricia, she's, she's not called Patricia, but the narrator has to go out uh, to her old stomping grounds in the Midwest. Uh, she has to go among the hayseeds, folks. She has to leave New York, or I think she's supposed to be in New York. Uh, she has to leave the city. She has to go back among the hayseeds of her family, who are mostly more conservative than she is. There's some talk about abortion. Can they abort the baby? They probably can't because of politics, but also maybe the sister doesn't want to, so on and so forth. Um, so at least uh, Lockwood doesn't bother trying to pretend that these uh, hayseeds are more whole or more authentic than she is. Um, so that's more or less that, that's more or less the gambit that say Jonathan Franzen took in the corrections, trying to pretend that he really thought that Midwestern people were in some sense better than his enervated academic self-insert narrator, but he he clearly didn't believe it, and the reader doesn't believe it either. That, that's, I mean, an even more profoundly dishonest novel than this. I would say it's probably better on a plot level in that it kind of has one at all. I would say that 2001 Franzen's writing is more jarringly annoying than Lockwood's. Lockwood is occasionally funny. Uh, Franzen really isn't. I would actually like to read one of Franzen's post-corrections novels. Um just to see see what he's up to. I don't anticipate I'll like it much, but uh, I've been surprised before. Anyway, um, so I, I, I dropped the class politics bomb, but I actually don't really think the problem here is political or moral, even if it is a reflection of, arguably a product of, political change, Right? I'm not saying that bourgeois is bad. I mean, I just spent however many minutes talking about uh, how some bourgeois art was was great and why that might have been. I'm also not trying to go for like, oh, you need to represent the poor toiling masses. I'm not trying to say that uh, no one is talking about this wasn't woke enough or socially aware enough. Not in the debased sense of social awareness anyway, which means, oh, you, you have a problem with problems. I'm also not trying to say it, it was too woke or any of the rest of that bullshit that people talk about. I just think it makes for bad art, right? This kind of narcissistic uh, self-regard. Not always, but often enough. Um, because I think, among other things, that this this late date, um, 
there was a time when the weakness of the bourgeoisie or or any way of the kind of they wouldn't have called it that the writers I'm about to talk about, but let's just put it this way. There was a time when the weakness of the bourgeoisie could be its own subject, right? Could produce an energy like, I don't know, a decaying neutrino or something. I don't even know if that's the appropriate science term, but in any event, it could, it, that could produce its own energy, its own force, right? It's not all just, uh, you know, self-confident, uh, Victorian burgers writing long novels, you do sometimes get some energy from the reverse, right? Obvious example being um, the anxious bourgeoisie of uh, late imperial Austria-Hungary, Weimar Republic, what have you. I wouldn't say this was necessarily the best time for writing, but the sort of nervous bourgeoisie of the late 20th century I think has something to do with why you had these transgressive writers come to the fore in English language writing, your Bret Easton Ellis's, your Kathy Akers, your Chuck Palahniuk's. Um, because in what they, what they had going for them was that they thought that, okay, in this period of decay, this period of an uncertain bourgeoisie that's unsure of its values, unsure of its place in the world, unsure of what the world really is, then we can create anything, right? It opens up these possibilities. We could just go buck wild. Probably also helps that you had censorship laws being struck down, um, you know, uh, certain changes in the publishing industry, but we'll leave that aside for now. But contemporary novels in roughly the same space can't even really commit to their lack of commitment, right? You have this thing where, okay, at least you're like edgy Gen X writers, though they also often kind of, in the end, they usually turn back to some pseudo-traditional morality. They at least were like committed some of the time to this idea that, okay, we don't need to have these coherent standards of how to do things we can we can liberate ourselves from them we don't have to commit to an agenda we don't have to commit to a morality we don't have to commit to an aesthetic program we can just let our imaginations run wild but you don't even really get that with people who agree today that there is no basis for commitment who don't make any commitments themselves they don't even commit to their lack of commitment I suppose because, you know, well, we don't need to go in. We'll go into that a little bit later. Um, uh, so, yeah. Um, in the interviews, some of the interviews I read, I didn't read all the ones I could. Lockwood was very extensively interviewed, as was Euler. There was a big press for both books. I think that the publishing industry really thought they had something with these internet novels. Uh, one of the things she said that drove her in writing this was talking about incommunicate the idea that her thoughts might be incommunicatable to people in the future, right? She said stuff about like, I just think of all the stuff I tweet, the things that my equally internet poisoned friends and I text back and forth to each other, and just how would anyone even understand what we are saying? Um. 
So the examples that she cites are things like uh, when she would hear bad news, she would tweet something like, shoot it in my veins. Um, that, you know, she pretended she was excited about it, excited in the same way, pleased as well, pleased and excited in the way that an addict might become uh, if they had drugs shot into their drug of choice, I suppose, shot into their veins, or perhaps uh, as somebody suffering from a grievous, painful injury might feel if they had painkillers injected into themselves. Uh, you know, the aforementioned binge, right? How to explain binge? Um, I actually think those things are easy to explain. Why is the shoot it in my veins concept any different from, say, go back to the 60s and 70s and people saying, sock it to me? Um, I suppose, because, you know, most people say shoot it in my veins ironically, right? They say it about something bad that happened and they're trying to indicate how bad it is by saying how much they want it. I mean, it's a silly operation. It's one I do plenty of times, uh, but it's not that complicated. But I've also definitely heard people say, shoot it in my veins about stuff they're actually excited about, a new movie coming out or whatever. Um, so how's that different from, from saying sock it to me when you see something you like? Uh, other than one sounds hokier now than the other. I mean, what that originally comes from is, you know, if you sock someone that's hitting them, that's usually not considered good. Um, so the irony element is still there. I actually remember knowing people who legitimately seemed to think that irony was invented like in the 1990s. Uh, they grew out of it, but I wonder if there's more people who think that than, than I thought. Anyway, um, like, what kind of world do you have to live in that that you think that that's like a good point? You think that your 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 internet jibber jabber, which is extent among other things, extensively documented, right? There's uh, millions of examples, possibly billions at this point, examples of most of these patterns of writing. They're all online. They're all searchable, pretty much. Uh, if, you know, some AI develops, I mean, maybe ChatGPT can already do it. Who knows? But, you know, the future AI civilization probably won't have any trouble searching the entire weird Twitter space to try to figure out how it talks. And uh, people write articles explaining it all the time. I think you have to pretend that this world is the only world, that the world's that exist the worlds that that world couldn't exist if those other parts didn't exist the parts that weird twitter is built on including the parts of the internet that it makes fun of as one of its main you know talking points you have to pretend all that doesn't exist and that the world that you want to talk about is some unique and special deviation uh if you're if you're gonna if you're gonna avoid short circuiting just this this narcissistic skein of a point oh no one no one can understand no people can understand you perfectly 
uh, actually. Uh, that's not, uh, you, you could scratch that off your, your list of problems. I would also say, uh, getting into characterization a little, that we get into the problem of, and again, this is related to kind of the narrowness of world. Uh, the, the, what I think of as kind of the contemporary subject of literature, right? So the contemporary subject, the contemporary narrator character, and a lot of the characters that your narrator will interact with, and this is, you, you see this all over the place, uh, from no one is talking about this, to, I mean, if you go back earlier to the aforementioned uh, chip in The Corrections by Jonathan Franzen, in uh, nose guard. So getting outside of English language letters, I don't know. I'm, I, I don't, am I obligated to just list like five examples for, for every, well, anyway, the basic contemporary subject, uh, basic characteristics, feckless, cowardly, self-aware, right? Usually has some sort of no values notionally, Right, you don't get like Dostoevsky and nihilism, or even or even outside of, you know, maybe some areas of French literature, you don't get like your Michel Houellebecq style nihilism, right? Notionally, they've got some kind of values, but they don't really live by them. Um, the only thing their past really counts for is maybe it's some kind of skeleton key of insight into like some kind of contrived eureka moment that solves their problems. Sometimes borderline getting into like borderline recovered memory shit, though I think at this point our writing class doesn't do recovered memory anymore. There's been enough podcasts about satanic panic. Um, you know, they're usually clever, but they're not really that smart. And they usually want stuff, right? It typically helps to have a narrator who wants something, but they're usually not especially passionate. That said, you know, pretty typical wants for esteem, for sex, usually more in the male characters, but also in the women, um, you know, fame, wealth. Uh, that That's often kind of what drives the plot, maybe some degree of self-discovery. Uh, and again, I don't want to say that this character type shouldn't be written about for any kind of moral or political reason. I'm not trying to say that any novel or story or what have you that has this kind of feckless contemporary subject as its narrator or as a major character is flawed. I've actually read a lot of books with characters who sound kind of like this that are actually pretty good. Um, including contemporary ones, and we'll talk a little bit about that. Um, that said, A, I do think it's becoming, it, it, it's a trope, a type of character that's used too often. Uh, you know, overuse is a thing. And B, I would say that the, the kind of the key here that, ta- that kind of shows us why there's a problem is that in spite of all this, the characters are generally understood to be superior. Usually they're a little bit smarter than those around them. They're usually a little bit more aesthetically pleasing. 
Um, and you've got to figure that's probably easy enough, right? Given you're usually talking about very small worlds. If nothing else, they have the superiority of the camera, right? They're the ones being followed. And it's not just a structural feature of literature, though it is to a certain extent. Typically, whoever you spend more time with gains more prominence and becomes, by that nature, kind of superior within the artificial world of the book. But they are also, in some sense, they have some kind of quality that draws the camera to them as they are depicted, even as the author is obviously making the choice to depict them. And uh, here's counterexamples. I would like to make some. Um, so, and actually they're not counterexamples to the contemporary subject. They're actually counterexamples of versions of the contemporary subject that I think are good, right? Just to prove that I'm not trying to be, you know, shitty about this. So one is, uh, the character Onion in the, he was the narrator of Good Lord Bird by James McBride, um, which I think is a very good use of a very contemporary kind of character, Right, he's cowardly by his own admission, Onion. He's out for himself. He's distinctly feckless. He just wants to get out of the situations he's put in by the other main character, who's arguably as far from this contemporary subject as you can be, John Brown, the anti-slavery militant who Onion uh, is around for much of his uh, series of campaigns, including at Harper's Ferry. I would say uh, a good example that has some fecklessness to it is in some way, they are in some ways related to the contemporary subject. Um, But the main characters in uh, the Netanyahu's by Joshua Cohen, among other things, they can't really be the contemporary subject because the narrator takes ideas seriously, whatever hypocrisies he has, whatever fecklessness, He is a serious historian. He takes his job seriously. Now, he's also stood up against um, Ben Zion Netanyahu, uh, the father of the Netanyahus who would go on to rule Israel, who is a, who's in some ways more feckless, more dishonest, uh, more hypocritical, but not in the way of a contemporary subject in that he is also vital. Like he's, he is a, he and his family are lively and uh, cause a lot of problems on purpose. And they also take ideas seriously, including the idea of Zionism and uh, the idea that they have a right uh, to something from diasporic Jews, like the main, like the narrator of the Netanyahu's. Uh, I would also cite El Nash, uh, in her novel, Animals Eat Each Other. These are contemporary subjects with most of the traits I discussed. I would say there's more passion to them. Uh, a, a, a greater degree of genuine lust and desire to dominate others and desire to be loved, depending on the character. Uh, but I would say that there's more weight to them. So I would say that is part of the problem with the contemporary subject, as in Lockwood's narrator, uh, as in Chip from The Corrections, the narrator from Atessa Moshfeg's Year of Rest and Relaxation. That's another pretty good one. 
who is also held to be superior, basically due to having a superior sense of aesthetics, which from interviews with Moshfeg kind of, that seems like a bit of a self-insert. Um, but there's not much weight to them. They don't actually do much to affect anyone else's lives. Uh, but in Animals Eat Each Other, the characters affect each other's lives profoundly. Um, the lives feel lived in. There's a weight to it. I do wonder if that is down to, and again, sorry to be a materialist here, but down to class difference, right? The weightless contemporary subject tends to be middle class, often academic, maybe works in the arts. Maybe they don't have a ton of money, but they usually have education. They live in a major city uh, around wealthy and educated people, if they're even if they're not wealthy themselves. Uh, whereas... Animals Eat Each Other takes place in the suburbs of Colorado Springs in the 90s with people who don't have that much money, uh, even if they're not, you know, beggars uh, or proletarians necessarily. Uh, maybe the problem here is taking taking the perspective of this contemporary subject for granted? I don't know. Not necessarily that. I'm not wedded to that proposition. Maybe it, what it comes down to is that there needs to be something of interest, right? You can't just present a, a lightweight asshole and say, see? And then just sit back with your fucking arms folded like you've accomplished something. Um, I, I, I don't know, man. Uh, so, yeah. Why why do I care about this? Well, I like to read good books. Sometimes I wind up reading bad books because of these features. Because of uh, uninteresting plots, weightless characters, small worlds. It occurs to me that I actually have written, or written, I've read books with characters who weren't exciting people necessarily uh where like maybe the plots aren't super active and again small worlds maybe you know a small town or what have you uh that were good so what am i complaining about we could talk about overuse but i would say that at the heart of these books with a fairly this this rot this malaise that these books represent is contempt whether they show it or not and from what i could tell lockwood presents herself as a fairly cheerful sort um in a way that still talks a lot about how we're all doomed you know classic millennial uh, I don't know if she counts as one, but you, you know what I mean. Um, but I think at the root is not just an interest in a small part of the world, a artistic decision to have minimalist characters uh, who don't have much in the way of passion or value or, or weight to them. 
I think, or or an interest in things other than plot as a driver of a story. All those things are fine potentially. I think there's contempt for all of those things. Contempt for a world beyond the everyday as experienced by the contemporary bourgeois novelist. Contempt for characters unlike those that they meet in their day-to-day lives, who they represent as these feckless assholes, basically, which, you know, again, it goes into how self-hate turns into self-love and probably vice versa. And contempt for uh, the idea that something happens that's worth writing down, contempt for the concept of change, contempt for uh, the idea that any given scene that is unchanging is actually worthy of accurately depicting. And why do I think that? Do I think that because I'm a paranoid weirdo? Well, possibly. Um, But I really can't look at how they have to know, right? They have to understand, especially given how much they complain about the circumstances in which they live, right? These aren't like, well, I guess David Brooks did it too, right? Because David Brooks wrote Bobo's in Paradise about how the bourgeois bohemian, basically the characters of stuff white people like, right? Uh, Bourgeois people with slightly with what would have once been considered bohemian tastes, how they're actually a superior ruling class to other ruling classes. But Brooks was full of, in his in his columns, was full of complaints about them too. And still is, you know, in his deeply stupid way. But the point is, they're not happy about the world that they have, the world that they depict as the only world. They have to understand there's more out there. And not just like, on the other side of the world, like on the other side of the fucking street. They have to understand that there's other ways of writing. These are supposedly educated people. They have every opportunity to broaden the world rather than attempt to collapse it. Or even if they try to collapse it, they have every opportunity to like, I don't know, make it funny, make it lively, make it interesting. You know, I think of uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm, right? Where uh, one of Larry's enemies says, you know, puts her puts her fingers about an inch together in front of Larry's face and says, you want to take the world and make it this small. And Larry just looks at her and says, I'd make that smaller. And like, you know, Curb Your Enthusiasm is great. I, I, you know, I have no problem with that particular version of bourgeois self-regard because they bother to make it fucking funny. Maybe maybe part of it's just a lack of talent. I actually do kind of think that, among other things, they don't educate the bourgeoisie the same way they used to. I actually do think that educational standards lowering is a thing, less on the idea that people were so much smarter before, but more because uh, because they actually cared about having talent in at the top. They were scared enough of the other bourgeois powers and of uh, uprising by by the peasantry, 
by socialists or whoever else, that they actually gave a shit that, that somebody had some brains. So they made you jump through a lot of hoops among other things. They made you learn how to express yourself halfway intelligently, uh, where, which speaking as someone who, who taught at a fairly respectable college doesn't really seem to be that much of a thing anymore. Anyway, the part of the book where, where Lockwood really lost me when I first listened to it was in her description of her reaction uh, to hearing about the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville in uh, 2017 and the killing there of Heather Heyer and the severe uh, injuring of many other people in a car attack by a Nazi. Uh, it's not so much that she was dismissive of it. Um, I kind of felt she was when I first listened to it uh, subjectively. Uh, that's kind of how I felt, but again, uh, listening to it sucked a lot more because, you know, it's one thing reading a bunch of tweets or what things that replicate a bunch of tweets. It's another thing having it fucking read to you. Um, and also, you know, all that shit was happening with my friend. But anyway, uh, reading again, I think uh, she just kind of missed the point. Right, so Lockwood, clearly not a fan of, you know, I'm not saying that she's even necessarily politically quiescent, though there might be some of that, certainly not sympathetic to fascism, part of the sort of impending doom sense of the feckless, that that helps reinforce why these feckless contemporary subjects do their fecklessness, increasingly they lean on the rise of fascism in, uh, in certain areas of Western society, in that uh, they can't get excited about things because then they'd be like them. Not quite that, but... The point is, is that... Um, what does she choose to dramatize uh, about the violence that Unite the Right? Uh, she, she dramatizes that she knew about it before Heather Heyer's mother knew that her daughter was dead, thanks to the portal, or, you know, Twitter. How many millions of people have died in front of strangers before anyone close to them knew? Right? How many millions of people have had strangers like bureaucrats or health officials or military officers record their names down as dead uh, before the family could know? Right? Wars, epidemics, accidents. Uh, How is this new? How is this interesting? How does this have anything to do with Twitter? Uh, why would that be the part that you chose to dramatize? Like, what is going on? Like, where is it conscious choice? And where is it something like stupidity? Like, just not thinking, right? A few paragraphs before in the book, uh, Lockwood was kind of rattling off uh, some absurdist zingers uh, that she made at a, uh, you know, Somebody had criticized her about not knowing enough about the Spanish Civil War. And we all know what that means, right? She wasn't criticizing, she wasn't She wasn't zinging a Frankist, right? She was zinging a po-faced lefty, right? And that's a, that's a predictable character in these books, right? Whenever anyone political, serious political leading show up, maybe they're kind of seen as unattainable saint-type figures, right? Oh, it's so admirable that, that you do this stuff, I could never do that more often they're depicted as kind of jerks as trying to be superior. And so she's zinging this guy and one, uh, 
One is where she says that perfect politics will come to this world as a raccoon with a scab for a face. I'll be the first to admit I'm not a poet or a great appreciator of poetry. There's a few poets that I like. Maybe there's some real juice in that image. It's evocative enough, I suppose. But when you look at what happened at Unite the Right, and the thing that you manage to think about is how social media let you know it happened. Not that that's irrelevant, but that's like the thing you choose to dramatize in order to get some kind of point across. A, what's the point? And B, how is that how you... I'm not even offended at this point. It's just, I don't know, is that the raccoon? Is that the raccoon with the scab for a face? Is it just non-sequiturs all the way fucking down? Because let me tell you, you could come up with with more interesting non-sequiturs. That was also a thing in 90s transgressive literature was uh, this kind of randomness, uh, forced whimsicality. But she, she didn't seem to be playing the higher thing for whimsicality. I don't know. Uh, yeah, pretty much uh, every representative uh, of another world that you ever get in any of these books, these contemporary subject books. And maybe I'll make a list of them. I actually do keep little lists of books I like and don't like from certain periods or whatever, so maybe I'll make a list. Maybe I'll append it or add it to the um, self-crit next episode. Basically, whenever you do get a representative from another world, they just suck. They're just just people who suck, right? They're like the lefty uh, giving uh, Patricia Lockwood a hard time for not knowing about the Spanish Civil War, right? The exception seems to be that in some works um, by people of color or queer people, uh, you do get representatives from the past who are depicted as okay, right? I guess, it, you know, there's investment in having ancestors that are pretty cool. Uh, and sometimes those ancestors are also in some sense meaningfully different from their offspring, which, among other things, usually lifts those books a little bit above kind of the common trash of this malaise culture we live in. Uh, but some of them are still managed to be kind of bad. But um, but that's it, really. Like, anyone with commitment, other than maybe to their family... Uh, well, let's put it this way. Anyone with commitment is other, naturally, because... The narrator doesn't have any. The author doesn't have any. Uh, so they might have commitment in a way that's uh, commendable but dull, like commitment to family. Uh, but for the most part, having any kind of commitment, especially commitment to an idea, that's, uh, you're bad. You're just bad. One way or the other, you're bad. You're either a hypocrite or a fanatic. Somehow you're both. You're annoying. Right, you're probably you're probably less good looking and have worse aesthetic choices than the narrator. Uh, 
right? You see this, uh, you see this in a few places. Uh, less, I would say, in the in in no one is talking about this. I will, other than you know the bit with uh, the Spanish Civil War, that doesn't come up as often here. But you do get this in other works. Um, maybe this is one for uh, self crit next time, but uh, that that's how I remember, for instance, the corrections. Uh, that's how that's how I remember uh, parts of Infinite Jest. Uh, going again, going back a little bit earlier. That's how I more or less remember uh, my year of rest and relaxation. But I see this as among other. I think it's independent, uh, but I think that it's a way in which literary culture has converged with the logic of comic books. Right? If you ever notice, it's always the villains in the comic books who have any ideas about anything other than let's keep the world the way it is and make sure bad people don't disrupt it, right? You think Magneto, you think Killmonger, Doctor Doom, and so on. They're the only ones who look at all the possibilities and are like, yeah, let's do some let's do some shit. Or let's have a commitment to something other than to, you know, uh, the state and or the uh, chosen family of the superhero team. Uh, now, I don't think contemporary narrative culture is necessarily borrowed that from comic books. Oh, you never know. Um, but it's like, yeah. So my point is, there's, I think, a, not just a lack of interest in ideas or, or passion or any kind of vision or even just like an accurate retelling of what life is like, I think there's active contempt uh, that you see in contemporary literature. Uh, people don't seem to ask why that much. Uh, they seem to accept the state of affairs, or they say it's the same as it ever was. Uh, you know, literature's always been this way, and then they go into genre fiction, or film, or comic books, or something instead. I, I see the point of that, or at least the latter part. I don't see the point of accepting it. But I see the idea that, yes, writers have always been kind of feckless assholes, right? Is this state of affairs really all that different from how things were in American literature in the late 20th century, right? You know, Updike, Mailer, then eventually, you know, Eugenides, Franzen, Wallace, all those guys, right? Were there tales of kind of divorce and domestic discontent? Were they, were they really any bigger or more interesting? Uh, than the rest of these books I'm talking about? Were they any more exciting? Were they any less dismissive of the rest of the world? I mean, if nothing else, uh, those writers of, you know, the Mailer uh, generation, the Updike generation, the Franzen generation even, really believed that there was a gap between the literature they were doing and the rest of narrative culture, including genre literature, that they were that they were superior to these things, uh, where your contemporary writers uh, don't pretend that. Uh, at, well, I think they might think that, but they don't come out and say it. It's unfashionable now. Yes and no. Uh, for one thing, like I said above, I do think that earlier elites, and not even entirely just elites, 
though you could say glo- the global elite, right? So someone who went through public school in New York in the mid 20th century, even if they came from a family, a working class family would be globally in like, you know, the elite because they were highly privileged by existing in New York at that time, right? Instead of somewhere that had been bombed flat multiple times during world wars. Uh, So they had this benefit of, and, and, you know, they took education very seriously at that time and particularly education to become part of an elite that communicated more effectively and more intelligently than the quote unquote lower orders. It didn't always work, right? You know, there was plenty of mush mouthed and just silly communication from rich people at that time. But if you took it seriously, there was someone to teach you. I'm not sure that you really get that so much. Um, I do think it provided a certain baseline competence. I also think that the confidence of that elite tended to uh, almost soften their contempt, right? So if you if you if you waved a pop a pulp novel in front of a uh, writer from this more confident period of American or English language literatures. If you waved a Philip K. Dick novel in front of them, they might say, oh, get that trash out of my face. Uh, But they didn't think a lot about it. They didn't think, even even if they weren't necessarily interested in the most interesting things, they didn't always have active contempt for them. The contempt was often more passive, if that makes sense. Uh, and, you know, some of them kind of did like some of that stuff, right? Uh, did like interesting stuff and incorporated it sometimes into what they did. Anyway, um, you'd, you'd figure with, uh, you figure, well, I don't know. Sorry, this has been a long one, I know, and I'm, I'm not losing steam necessarily, but perhaps some coherence, but we're almost done. Uh, also, being a materialist, I'm going to make some material analysis here, though not in a dollars and cents way that you could easily graph, though, I don't know, maybe you can find a way to do it. Um, any writer is going to write within a larger cultural conversation. That conversation is going to be made up of connections between reference points, points in debates. These can be long-standing debates, like whether literature should be political or not. They can be debates of the moment about the quality of a given work. They can be uh, aesthetic. They can be social. They can be political. They can be personal. And they form this whole sphere that you can create an array of positions, I guess you could say, or of relationships to these questions, these debates, not all of them necessarily. Maybe you could focus it on one or two. Maybe you can have opinions about a lot of them. Maybe 
you don't express all of these opinions, but your relationship to these questions, these ongoing line coordinate lines and points within the space of culture will inform the work that you produce. And it is my thought that the ongoing crises of the last 50 years have sliced through many of these networks like a like the prow of a i'm imagining like an armored prow of a, like an armored steamship uh cuts through them and the ones that are left and some that reassemble themselves are ultimately the linkages that there are left are those that are determined by the logic of the market, right? It's not just what will sell, though that's a big part of it. It's not just that people think about money and social class and what have you. It's not even just that market metaphors become increasingly important. Though all of those are features of our situation, by no means individually unique to our situation, but perhaps uniquely prominent. What I mean is everything gets tied back to a small number of debates, a small number of possible subject positions, to use a kind of theory-ish phrase, probably wrongly as far as theory people are concerned, that all at the end at the end of the day only have a few places you can go and almost all of them go back to market valuations go back to who can buy or command what with what resources and I think that one way you can see this is for all of the supposed cultural differences between people in Generation X, that is to say those born between the early 60s and the early 80s, and millennials, that is to say people born in the 20 years thereafter, uh, between the early 80s and the aughts, all those differences that we supposedly have about culture, about speech, about history, about society, about literature, about style, right? There, there are some notable stylistic differences, but both your, many of your Gen X writers and many of your millennial writers, in, or I would say especially the ones who are picked out as being voices of their respective generations, they have difficulty saying anything lasting. Anything that seems to really matter after the hype cycle has died down about the societies in which they live. Their works are similarly weightless, airless, uh, kind of trifling. I would say 
uh, the contempt for the rest of the world is more active, maybe the further you get uh, in in our time stream closer to the present. I, I, I don't know. It, it might not quite be like that. Uh, and they can't. They can't say anything lasting or interesting because they can't find or maybe they're just disinclined to fight to find any kind of biting point. A biting point that could be provided by those coordinate points I was talking about. If any of the old, well, not even necessarily old, but if there's anything that they felt was worth talking about other than things that could be tied back to the market individualist logic of neoliberalism and of the market. There we go. Drop the end. <laughs> Drop the neoliberalism word. Uh, because that's ultimately where this market logic takes us, you know, in, in uh, the words of a certain wise man, uh, all that is solid melts into air. Uh, everything is subsumed within the logic of capitalism and the social and cultural expression of that is this narcissistic individualism, this self-hatred that turns into self-love and vice versa, which along with it, if, if you only have this really limited set of reference points, it becomes really hard to make a reality feel lived in, it becomes hard to make a world that doesn't feel tiny. It becomes difficult to uh, establish any stakes that you know you can you can develop the plot, you can you can burnish the prose as much as you want, but it doesn't really have much behind it. Well, all right, what to, what 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 do what to do about it? Um, I don't, I don't know. Uh, I actually do think there, there, the good books come out and they come out regularly and I'll try to talk about some of them. Um, I don't think I, let's put it this way. Here's one of my criticisms of criticism. And this includes criticism of critics that I like is that, uh, I don't think any of the individual aspects I talk about if you take them individually uh, of contemporary literature are necessarily damning in themselves, right? Good writing doesn't have to be committed to anything other than being some kind of good writing, right? It doesn't have to be political. doesn't have to be moral. doesn't have to be serious. doesn't have to be historically informed. Uh, it doesn't have to be the opposite of uh, no one is talking about this. Because, I mean, you'll notice I haven't talked about... Huh, now I'm one of the people who, who isn't talking about this. Ha ha. Um, I haven't talked about it that much for the last, I don't know, however many minutes on the podcast. Because ultimately, it's a symptom more than the more than it is a disease. Uh, right. You can't just write the opposite of it and expect, uh, expect anything good. Right. 
you know, you, you don't have to be funny or serious. You don't have to choose, right, risque or wholesome, long or short, realistic or fanciful, you know, sexy or, or puritanical, uh, dark or light, right? You get people who, you know, critics who try to say that that's the way f- one or another of those dyads is the way forward. Uh, and I, I don't think that's that's how it goes. Uh, it's not necessarily even originality or unoriginality. I do think we could use more original thought, but you know, you, you, you can play with the old tropes, uh, and establish models and still make something good. Um, so what, what, what are we, what are we left with? Where do we, how do we make something good? I suppose I kind of already said it, which is you, you don't necessarily need to have a commitment to like a political philosophy or something, but you need a commitment to your work doing something. I kind of think that increasingly literature borrows from the plastic arts, painting, sculpture, and so on, uh, installation art, whatever the hell you call it. Uh, And maybe I'm a Philistine, but I think that those arts took a pretty bad turn uh, when they stopped having much of an interest in doing something, making an effect, right? It could be depicting something. It could be moving, inspiring a feeling. It could be uh, just entertaining, right? Entertainment's perfectly valid. And the plastic arts, as far as I can tell these days, the point of them isn't to do any of that stuff. Nobody feels any of that stuff. Or it, when you when you just have, I don't know, uh, fucking... Uh, the guy with the shark. It's just a shark. It's just a, just a shark in formaldehyde. What does that do to, to anyone? Uh, it doesn't do anything. I don't think it's a point. What it does is it is it exists, and it's like kind of a proof of concept. I thought of this thing and I made it. Have a look at it. Which I don't know. Maybe that's great for the plastic arts. Maybe I am a philistine. I don't think that's good enough for literature. I don't think that's good enough for what is you know one one of our older forms of art uh, that could do something a lot more that can produce an effect. Uh, that seems like a, a pretty doesn't seem like that much to ask, does it? But it's something that contemporary literature fails in again and again. I think we can do better, even in these times. Because that's another thing about literature, why I don't think it necessarily... The political, social situation sets conditions for art but then art can work around those conditions, can arguably transcend them, if you believe in that kind of thing. And I think I might. Can actually move, can actually, can arguably change some of those conditions, or at least contribute to changing them. I don't think that should necessarily be the point of art, but it can, it can be part of a general gestalt of change. But anyway, now we're rambling. Uh, that's it for me. That's it. That's it for 
for for today. Uh, I'll, I should have another one in maybe another couple weeks. Uh, that'll also be a free one. Uh, if you like this, please. Uh, now that I'm on now that I'm on Apple, you can uh, rate and uh, comment and subscribe. Uh, I'm gonna work on getting up on Spotify. Uh, if you can, uh, please hop over to uh, Melendi Avenue Review. There'll be a link in the show notes and subscribe there because for free you get uh, a monthly podcast in your mailbox and a monthly digest of some of my reviews for a small amount of money. I think it's $5 a month, uh, 50 a year. You get, uh, all my podcasts. So at least two a month, I might, I might decide to ramp that up, uh, weekly reviews, cute pictures of my cat. You vote on what I read, all kinds of fun stuff. Anyway, thanks for listening. Have a good one.